Noah Girati, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thanks for having me. So it's about one o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday, and I'm just curious, what's your day looked like so far? Um, day so far today has been, you know, pretty uneventful. But I uh, woke up, went for a run, came home, made breakfast, just kind of been hanging out, doing some emails, uh, talking to you. Um, <laughs> and that, that's about it so far. Yeah, it's been pretty low key. Yeah, and where are you at right now from a training standpoint? What is the current focus? Um, current focus. Um, well, the, so I'm training for a fall marathon, and I think when you've got a marathon on the schedule, however far away it is, like that is always the focus. Um, but in a more short short term sense, I've got Beach to Beacon coming up in like two weeks. Um, so I'm just trying to get, you know, as fit as possible before I get there because the field, uh, is looking pretty crazy. Um, I just saw it the other day. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty loaded up front. You're going to have your work cut out for you. I know. I was kind of, <laughs> I was like, okay, it's like kind of the first race of the season. Maybe beach to beacon will be challenging, but like not super hard, but, uh, it's like, a, it looks like an Olympic final. <laughs> I mean, there's a guy named Bekele in there. They've got everything. Yeah, that's one way to kick off your fall marathon training, I guess, right? Just throw yourself into the fire. Yeah, it'll be a shock to the system, but it'll be fun. And I've never raced out there before, so I'm looking forward to the trip. Yeah, it's a good scene. I last raced out there about 10 years ago, and the community really gets into it. It's a fun course and best time of year to be in Maine, in my opinion. So I think you'll have a good time. Yeah, I've heard there's a big like lobster lobster dinner afterwards so that's kind of what i'm focusing on <laughs> you'll get the full new england experience that's for sure and there's some great um <laughs> there's some great local microbrews uh in portland which is near cape elizabeth where the race takes place so i think you'll be able to enjoy some of that afterward as well um you mentioned a fall marathon can you talk about it um no <laughs> <laughs> it's a tba so um, I guess I can speak about it in generalities, but I'm not really allowed to give anything away. All right. Let's talk about the marathon in general. You were in Chicago last fall. That was your first mm-hmm. marathon finish. You came across in 216 and change. And I'm just, you know, I'm really interested in how you felt about your race, but also the marathon distance itself. And the reason I ask that is I've talked to so many other marathoners over the years like Meb and Dina come to mind and they both told me they swore it off after the first one. Then obviously they went on to win Olympic medals and majors and had a good career in the marathon. So I'd love to get your thoughts on Chicago last fall, how you felt about your race and just how you felt about 26.2 miles in general. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if at the very beginning of it, I wouldn't say I was setting out to run two sixteen. you know, the time in and of itself, um, I would have regarded that as a disappointment when I first, you know, decided to run a marathon, I guess. But my, my buildup for that was kind of, um, unique to my last couple of years in that I came, I was coming off an injury that, that pushed my running kind of late. Um, so I really had about, I had like three months or about 12 weeks from zero miles to marathon. Um, so my buildup was not was not ideal in terms of, you know, trying to run a high quality marathon debut. So honestly, when I look back at 216, I'm actually pretty, pretty pleased with it to, that I did that off of the training that I did, um, which also like really excites me. Like, I mean, I definitely blew up at the end of Chicago and I definitely had a very long, like last eight miles um, where I was really suffering. But knowing the training that I, that I did before that, I actually like finished pretty optimistic um just knowing that okay if i get 
you know, real marathon training in, I, I'm able to do a full cycle, healthy, like I'm excited for my potential in the event. So, um, I wouldn't say I swore it off. Like I was definitely in tremendous pain when I finished. Um, but I was excited about the prospect of, of coming out another one, um, with my feet really under me. So coming from 10 K and even successful half marathon background leading into that, what was different about racing a marathon versus shorter events for you? Yeah, I just like patience was kind of my my key word. Like, you know, and people I talked to with people I talked to before, um, a lot of reading I had done, you know, people were always like preaching patience in the marathon. And so especially with the training, the lesson ideal training that I'd done, I knew that basically I just had to survive like as long as I could. Um, whereas in the in the ten K definitely, but even in the half marathon, you have to have really a sense of urgency from the beginning. Um, if you want to, if you want to run fast, the marathon is really about, I mean, so many people can run five minute pace for a little while at least. And this is about like running five minute paces, like as long as you possibly can. So I decided to come at it with like a different frame of mind, whereas it was more about survival and staying comfortable and staying relaxed rather than like staying on top of the pace and pushing as hard the way I would have to do. Um, you know, in the 10 K or half. What were some of the biggest takeaways that you'll bring with you into the next one, whenever that may be? Yeah. Um, no, I, I learned like, I learned a tremendous amount. Like I learned that you can't fake the training. Um, you really have to have miles underneath you if you want to get to the last 10 K and still be able to hold yourself together. Um, I learned the importance of nutrition. Um, and it's not like we weren't, like experimenting with different stuff during our long runs, but I was really bad at grabbing bottles and drinking bottles. <laughs> like, um, I kept grabbing the wrong bottle and I would have to like, look at the name tag and I'd be like, Oh shit. You know, and I'd be like, Hey Zach, Zach, are you around here? I got your bottle. And so I was like grabbing other people's bottles. Um, I just need to like, I need to practice that and like kind of stay composed because I was really bad. And I think that could have, that could have helped a little bit. So yeah, just understanding that that this is an event you can't fake, and also like some of those rookie some of mistakes, those more intricate things. Yeah, just rookie mistakes. But all in all, like I was happy with the experience. Let's talk about your year to this point so far. You got on the track a couple months ago at Stanford, set a PB in the ten thousand and twenty eight oh seven, and I looked it up on Twitter afterward. I remember you had tweeted something and it said, I put some demons to rest tonight. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I felt like, you know, and, and to be honest, I actually just went back and read our, our first conversation um, just, just to see how big of an asshole I'd become since the last time we <laughs> talked. But, um, but I really felt that night um, in Palo Alto, I was able to kind of end what I kind of felt was like a year long period of like racing stagnation. Um, I've been, you know, since my situation changed so drastically and all of a sudden, you know, I'm a full-time sponsored athlete. Like there's, I, I had, I was feeling the weight of greater expectations and learning how to cope with that over the last year. I felt like I finally got to Peyton Jordan and was able to just like relax from like my old self and prove to myself that I actually like am getting better and that I have finally like, come to grips and am able to like control my situation. Um, I felt like the I, I got my feet back under me that night for sure. Yeah. And what have the last few months been like since then from 
just a day-to-day approach that you're taking toward your training? Yeah, well, since then, I, I took kind of an extended extended break after that. So, um, I you know, it took a couple down weeks. I went to Costa Rica to do a race there, um, which wasn't a huge um, competitive focal point, but it was more, you know, kind of like a fun vacation thing. So it's really just been the last, you know, four or five weeks um, since Peyton Jordan that, uh, that I've really like gotten back, you know, full swing into training and I'm kind of readjusting to that, to that daily grind. Cause I gave myself a pretty long, long mental break, um, before gearing up for this marathon. Yeah. How important are those breaks in general and in the overall scope of your entire year? Oh, they're, they're absolutely essential for me. And, you know, during the breaks, I'm still, I'm still running. So I don't really take, um, you know, if I'm healthy, I'll only take a handful of like total rest days every year, like if I can manage it. But in terms of like mental breaks, they're, they're enormous. You know, I can just get, you know, four to six mile run in and then live the rest of my day as a normal person, not be worried about staying up too late, not, not worried about the next workout or the next race. Um, because when I, when I am entering a competitive season, like that is my focus. Um, and you can't do that year round. I, I don't think it's possible. It's at least not possible for me to, to retain like a lot of competitive energy all year round. So the breaks are, are huge for me. Is it hard for you to flip that switch off? Um, no, <laughs> not at all. Like, uh, you know, I, I finish whatever my last heat graces or whatever. I don't cool down, you know, like I go home, I shower and it's over, you know, um, you know, the last step of the race is the last step that I'm really thinking about. So no, it's very easy for me to switch it off. <laughs> like I switched it off for years. So, uh, you know, so it's, it's kind of a fun thing for me to do. It's, it's sometimes it's switching it back on. That's the harder part. Yeah. Let's get into that a little bit. What's the most challenging part about switching it back on when you've taken that chunk of time off and away from training? I guess it's just like, you know, how hard what you're about to do is, <laughs> is going to be, you know, and you, you know, like the tremendous amount of work that kind of lays ahead. And, uh, and that's always kind of a daunting task to me. Like I'm excited for the end results of all that stuff, but in terms of like the daily grind of training, sometimes it, the, the way that I cope with it is just by getting into a routine. Um, and so while I'm restarting that routine, sometimes I definitely like have some doubts, but once I get the wheels rolling and I'm, and I'm back into that, you know, Tuesday, Friday workout schedule or whatever, um, then it's pretty easy. That just becomes my new normal. Um, but in that kind of gray area where I'm converting uh, from normal guy to like professional runner, sometimes it's a little difficult. Yeah. Hard to settle back into that groove. Yeah. So you mentioned our last conversation. I'll link to it in the show notes, but that was a little over a year ago. It was like April, 2017. And we talked a bit about the sponsorship side of the sport and making a go of it financially. And you weren't sponsored by Saucony at the time. Uh, and you told me, even if I'm lucky to land some kind of big sponsorship, I'll keep working. And I mean, since then it was like, it was almost on cue. I felt like it wasn't that long after we talked that you signed that deal with Saucony. So I'm curious how things have changed for you, if at all, since you've become a sponsored athlete. Yeah. So that I signed with Saucony a month after, um, a month after we talked. Um, but I didn't know what was going to happen when we talked. So it was kind of a, 
of a whirlwind time. Um, you know, and I guess a lot has changed um, compared to my situation now to my situation then. Um, I did continue to work um, at the running store, though I did quit the gym. I really hated, I really hated working at the gym, so I quit that as soon as I signed the Saucony deal. Um, but I was still working, you know, 15, 20 hours a week at the shoe store up until uh, up until very recently. The store actually closed, unfortunately, um, last month. So. So it's really just been in the last few weeks that, uh, that running is my only job. Um, so it's kind of a transition phase for me right now. Um, cause I did continue to work up until, you know, just now, basically. Do you think you'll look for something else now, or are you going to try to make a go of it as a full-time professional athlete for a while and see if you can balance that out in other ways? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And it's one that I'm kind of actively working through and I don't have a solid answer yet. Um, I'm not, I'm not actively seeking a job. Um, I'm lucky that I'm in a spot now where I financially can just be a full-time runner and I can make that work. Um, but that said, if something were to pop up that was flexible and that I enjoyed, I, I'm definitely not opposed to working while running. Um, one thing I'm going to be doing when the school year starts back up, I, uh, I just, uh, signed on as an assistant coach, for high school um, so that'll just be a couple hours a day, but I'm pretty excited to get involved, um, in that way. But I think more so I'm trying to, I'm trying to plan out how I'm going to manage my days and like really recognizing that this is like a pretty unique and awesome opportunity for me as a runner to to not have other obligations in terms of work. Um, so one, I can do other stuff and running that I haven't done, but two, like it gives me a large chunk of my day to explore things that maybe I've neglected in the past. It gives me time, like free time to travel, you know, do training since other places, if that's something I can work out. So, so there are like a tremendous number of possibilities, um, that come with not, you know, having to punch a clock and I'm kind of excited to explore those too. I'm just not sure what direction we're going to go yet. So I want to dig into a few things there. The first being uh, what you had just mentioned about coaching a high school team this fall, which I think is super cool. And I saw that recently you gave a talk like over Skype to a high school running camp. How important mm -hmm. is it for not just you, but elite athletes in general to stay connected with that next generation of runners who are going to be coming up through the ranks over the next few years? Um, I, I mean, I think it's hugely important. I, I guess I don't necessarily... Um, think of it in terms of focusing like just on, just on youth. Uh, um, like one big thing for me is just trying to stay involved in like my local community of runners. And that's something that working at the shoe store allowed me to do. And so there's kind of a void there now that I'm not at the shoe store anymore. Um, so I, I actually got to know this particular, um, this particular high school team because they would come in for spike nights. And so I got to know the coach and I'd see the kids frequently. And so, I'm excited about this opportunity to be there in like a more formal fashion, but also, you know, stay connected. You know, the high school is right down the street. It, it feels very local to me. Um, you know, I like to run, I ran a local road race here last week. So the, there are ways that I feel like I can stay connected here um, and just kind of keep interest in the sport growing. Yeah. And there's a lot to be connected to in Boulder. It's a obviously great competitive scene. You've got, see you there, which has a rich history and various other athletes who have come in and out of town over the years to train. Like what are things like 
there right now? Like what's the what's the current climate as far as the running community goes in, in Boulder and where do you see yourself in it? Yeah, I mean I I think it's I think it's strong right now. I think I th- there's a there's a lot of great, great runners here. Yeah. <laughs> like that's kind of what it all boils down to is that there's a tremendous amount of talent here. Um and I think we're all pushing each other to get a lot better. Um I think there's a very really like cooperative attitude in Boulder now whereas before maybe it was a little more comp- like more of a competitive attitude. I think now we're we're all starting to realize and settling down and being like, okay, we're all doing the same thing. We all support each other. We all want each other to run fast, um, but maybe just not quite as fast as we're running. Um, <laughs> um, and so that, and so that's awesome. But there's also, you know, the local road racing, like the downtown road races just got started back up after a year hiatus. Um, and there were, there were a few hundred people out there. So it was really cool to see that, you know, the community is alive and well, the community track races are going on at CU every Thursday over the summer. So yeah, the community is definitely kind of bubbling, um, definitely more so than anywhere else I've lived. Let's talk about your training group for a little bit, the Roots Running Project. Mm-hmm. How important has that group environment been to your overall development as an athlete? Oh, it's been uh, it's been everything um, to my development. Um, so, you know, this will, part of this may go back to our first conversation, but when I first moved out here, you know, I was essentially the only, the only guy in the group. Um, and I could make that work for a little while, but over the last year and a half, two years, we've kind of built a group of that's really solid, um, especially on the men's side right now. And the women's side is, is younger, but, um, but they're doing really well too. And so just being in this formal system for, you know, going on three years has really given my body a chance to adapt to something new and a much higher workload. And I think we're uncovering some, some talent that I didn't know was there. Um, in a more practical, like day to day sense, I, I've got really talented teammates for the first time, um, in my career, like, you know, three, four guys who on any given day are going to be running faster than me in a workout. And so I'm definitely, you know, having to bring my game to every practice. Whereas where it was, when it was just me, if I was having a tough day, maybe it was a little bit easier to, to back off a little bit. Um, so my teammates are holding me accountable to kind of a new level of work. Um, so I really love going to practice every day now. It's it it's all awesome. not that I didn't before, but especially now, because um, we've just got a big cooperative group of really talented people. Um, so it's been really fun to be a part of. How has your relationship with Coach Richie Hansen evolved since you've been part of the group? Yeah, um, it's definitely it's become more cooperative um, over the last year. I would say when I, when I first moved out here, um, I think both of us kind of agreed that I was just going to kind of shut up and do, do everything that was written and kind of follow the plan, um, you know, blindly. And, and it totally worked. Like I, I became much better. Um, but now that I'm, you know, getting to be kind of an older athlete, um, I've been in the training system for a few years now. I'm starting to understand it pretty well too. I think I can show up to a workout and offer feedback and a lot of times we'll kind of meet in the middle. Um, and so it, it feels cool to be a little bit more involved in my training that way. Um, and not that he didn't respect my opinion when I first moved, first moved out here, but I think I, we've, we both have a high level of trust in each other, whereas we value each other's feedback. 
and we can make a plan together. Um, that said, you know, his word is ultimately law. So if, if he disagrees or if he wants to do something different, you know, I'm still gonna, I'm still gonna follow his judgment, but yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. We've both really grown a lot together over the last couple of years. You mentioned trust. How important is that element to a successful coach athlete relationship? I think it's huge. Um, I've definitely seen athletes, um, both in Boulder and elsewhere who just, who just never quite gave themselves away to the training and the coaching system. Like they just weren't quite to go, weren't quite able to go all in, in terms of trust. And I mean, the workload is already really difficult and it's, it's almost impossible if you're trying to do that workload while questioning it. Um, that makes it, it, yeah, it makes it hard to really cultivate confidence if you're not believing that you're doing something for a specific reason and a specific outcome. Um, yeah, so trust for us, you know, I've, I've always trusted Richie from the first day I got out here. Um, and I think it's benefited us both. You've talked about how your relationship with him has evolved. How has your actual workload evolved over the past few years, especially as you've moved up in distance to the half marathon marathon more recently? Yeah. Um, you know, in a lot of ways it's the week, the week outline is, is very much the same. Um, but things have just gotten a little bit longer and a little bit faster, um, over the last couple of years. So, you know, I'll, I'll get into the hundred mile a week range for this marathon buildup. Um, I've never really run over 90. I think last year I got up to like 91 miles or something. And so this year we'll, we'll push a hundred. Um, my interval workouts have gotten a little bit faster. Um, but you know, I'm not doing anything radically different, um, than I was when I first moved out here, to be totally honest, the long runs are more quality, um, and more marathon focused, but it's really just been kind of continuing that gradual trajectory of increasing the workload steadily. Um, so we're, yeah, we're not doing anything radically different than we used to. Can you take me through that weekly outline and describe what it looks like? Yeah. Um, so if we're starting on a Sunday, that's, that's going to be the long run day. Um, you know, for me right now, it's kind of like 14 to 16 miles in the marathon. Then the true like meat of the marathon buildup will, you know, be in the low twenties probably. Um, Monday would be easy. Um, Tuesday would be kind of an interval workout in the morning, uh, double in the evening. Um, Wednesdays look like they're going to be kind of long doubles. So like today I'm doing seven and seven. Um, and I think that goes up to like 10 and 10 Thursday speed, Friday, easy Saturday tempo. That's kind of the, the bread and butter week. I would say. What's your favorite part of it or the workout you most look forward to? Ooh, I, I would say I've really grown to love um, the long runs, especially this this segment. We're really utilizing kind of the higher mountain roads that we have access to in Boulder, like Magnolia Road, which a lot of will be you know familiar to a lot of listeners, I think. And then uh, Rollinsville. So these are you know higher altitude dirt roads, pretty challenging terrain. Um, we're starting to utilize those um, to get used to running hard on hills and stuff. So. I've really been enjoying going up there and challenging myself, you know, over longer runs at faster paces on those roads. Do you think you'll ever go down and do some shorter stints at sea level as you get closer to the marathon or will you stay in Boulder for the entirety of it? Um, I'm going to mostly stay in Boulder for the entirety of it. I will spend some time um, back home in Indianapolis, um, Indiana, which is obviously at sea level. 
both, but that's more, that's more for like a convenience factor in between a couple of races. So I'll spend like a week and a half there, maybe total, but it's not like specifically to get any sea level training in. Um, you know, one, one thing we always say about altitude training is that we just, we, we don't really think about it. Like altitude isn't factored in to any of the paces I run. Um, for all intents and purposes, we kind of just forget we're at altitude. So I'd really be doing the same training at sea level. Um, so it's not something we prioritize in terms of uh, changing up altitude. Hey, we're going to take a quick break so I can thank our sponsor for this episode. It is UCAN. UCAN powders and bars with super starch give you slow-release carbs without the big crash. That's long-lasting energy without the sugar spikes, and it's easy on the stomach before you head out and run. I can personally vouch for UCAN as I've used the drink powder to fuel my last few marathons, including Boston just a couple months ago, and it has been an integral part of my pre-race nutrition plan. But don't just take my word for it. Top athletes like Meb, Dathan Ritzenhine, and members of the Zap Fitness Racing Team use it to fuel their training and racing as well. UCAN is ideal for any runner looking to fuel workouts and races without all the sugar of many other sports drinks. There's nothing out there quite like it. So I'd recommend trying a UCAN sample pack for yourself. You'll get one packet of UCAN Super Starch drink mix, one packet of UCAN Protein drink mix, and one UCAN snack bar, all for under five bucks. And that includes free shipping. Check it out today at generationucan.com slash morning shakeout. There is no the, just slash morning shakeout and see what you think. My thanks to UCAN for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Let's get back to the show. I'm curious, how much would you attribute, you know, not just some of your success, but how important is, is altitude? You've got some athletes and coaches who are like, no, we need to be based at altitude. That's really important to our development. Um, in your case and in your experience, having moved there from Indianapolis, which is obviously at sea level. Um, how important has that component been to just your overall progression in the last few years since you've lived in Boulder? Yeah, that, that's a really hard question to answer. Um, I don't really have any data for you. Like I've never gotten my blood tested or anything like that. So it's hard. I can't really look at it from that angle. Um, in terms of like when I moved out here, I'm really doing kind of everything differently and I'm doing everything better <laughs> and more of it. So it's hard to like really focus on one variable like altitude. You know, I, I'm sure it hasn't made me any worse at running. So, um, but really for me as an athlete, it's just kind of a mental, it, it's kind of a mental edge knowing that when I go to a race, like theoretically, um, I don't really have an advantage over anybody because almost all the athletes I compete against are at altitude, but I feel like, I feel like, okay, that guy trained at altitude. I trained at altitude. Like we're even, there's not like a huge variable that's going to give him an advantage over me. So, so from a mental perspective, that's kind of how I use it. I'm like, oh, I trained at altitude. I should be fitter when I'm at sea level, but you know, I don't really know if that's true. Yeah, no, that answers my question though. That's what I was most curious in is like when you step to the start line, do you ever feel like you're either at an advantage or just not at a disadvantage because of, of where you live? You mentioned growing up in Indianapolis, Indiana, then you went to school at DePaul, which is also in Indiana. When did running first come into your life? Um, I started running in high school. Um, I knew my dad had been, you know, a pretty decent, um, pretty decent, decent high school runner. 
And uh, he still ran occasionally um, when I was really young. So he kind of suggested that I go off for cross country. I was, you know, pretty hesitant, but, um, but, you know, he, he dropped me off at practice and I went for a three mile run and it felt okay. Um, and from then on, I really just ran casually, you know, just showed up to practice maybe four or five days a week and, you know, probably ran 15 miles a week total, um, for the next three years until, until my senior year. And that's when we got a new coach who really structured our training. I started to see some big improvements. Um, and so really my senior year of high school is where running became like a thing for me, I would say. Then you went on to DePaul, which is division three. You were an all American there. At what point did you decide that you wanted to stay with it and see what you could do after you graduated? It it was, so I graduated in 2013. Um, my, my coach definitely, uh, my coach Corey Staffordian definitely told me when I left to that he thought I had more left in the tank, um, which I, which I agreed with. I felt like I hadn't really pushed myself that hard in training yet, but I, I also wasn't, I didn't know how one became a post-collegiate distance runner. I didn't know what the options were. You know, there wasn't, there's no path. You know, it's right. not like you graduate college and you join the minor leagues or something. It's, it's just like, especially for a guy with my PRs, it was more just like, okay, we'll go out into the real world. And if you keep running, great. And so that's kind of what I did. I just kind of went out and I was working different jobs and I was still running, but not at a high level, just kind of enough to show up to the local races and be competitive. Um, but it was really, really 2015. So a couple of years later where I felt like I was really not fulfilling my purpose, especially in terms of running. I felt like, okay, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to try to be a runner, like I really need to go all in with it. And so 2015 is when I really made like an active push to kind of change my running lifestyle. And was there a single validating moment for you at that time in 2015 that was the spark that you needed to stick with it? Um, you know that so that spark probably came immediately after my move to Boulder. So so I ran like one I ran a one oh six and a half marathon that November, um, like right before I moved out here. And I was like, oh, sixty six minutes. Like I finished eleventh at Indianapolis Monumental Half Marathon. Like that was pretty good for me. Like it was a two minute improvement in my half marathon. I was like, okay, you know, like maybe I can. I'm maybe I'm making the right call by like putting more energy in, into this. But then I moved to Boulder at the end of November. And in January, I ran another half marathon and um, ran 64-19 and qualified for the marathon trials. And that's really when I was like, man, I just dropped four minutes off my halftime in two months. Like, you know, let's see how deep the well is. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not sure if I'm not sure if I'm just scratching the surface of something really awesome here or if this is it, but it's like my energy needs to go towards figuring this out. And as your career has evolved, how is your thinking about your potential changed and what you want to achieve in the sport over the next few years? Yeah, I think, I think now and kind of the story of my last year has been, has been acknowledging that I kind of have a position among the best, um, best distance runners in this country. Like if I'm on a start line, I need to believe that I can be competitive with them because I really should be competitive with them. Like my times on paper 
are like at least in the ballpark of what a lot of my, you know, fellow competitive runners are doing. And so now it's like, I don't know if it's as much as about like discovering hidden potential for me as it is like showing up and competing and getting the best out of myself. Does that, does that make sense? It's like, uh, I'm more, I'm more focused on, on placing high up in the field rather than just having like a good performance for me. I want like an objectively good performance. Yeah. It makes, um, it but, makes total sense. Yeah. So that's been a big focus for me, but the cool thing about trying a new event like the marathon is you kind of put yourself back in that position where it's like, okay, I ran 216, nothing, you know, okay time, but it's like nothing super special. Like, again, let's see how deep the well is. Like, 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 I don't know where this thing, this thing ends. And I think I have, I can improve in shorter distances too, but the marathon is exciting to me because it's new. And I kind of feel like I'm back in that position that I was in in 2015. Yeah. And there's so much still to figure out and improve upon. Right. And it's like the potential to improve from a 216 to a 212 or a 211, I think can be a lot more exciting than if you're in a 10K and you're like, well, I could go from 2807 to 2759, which would still be a huge improvement. But it's, you know, you know, kind of what needs to go into that because of your experience in the past. Right. Yeah. I can be kind of naive about the marathon. Right. It's exactly. Like it's, a new, it's a new frontier. And if, I show up to my next marathon and chop four minutes off. I mean, that would be, I would be really happy, but it wouldn't be like, I mean, it wouldn't be unbelievable, you know, but it's like in the 10 K it's like 2807. Okay. How much faster am I really going to get? You know, am I a 2820 guy? Like, I mean, a 2720 guy, like probably not, Yeah. you know? And so it's, I'm, I'm flirting with like marginal gains over, over the 10 K now <laughs> where uh, I'm really looking for those big PRs in the marathon. How do you keep yourself level going into a race? Let's say Beach to Beacon, where on paper you see all these guys who have PRs that are much faster than yours in 10K, but you're going there and you're thinking, I'm a professional. I've got to mix it up with these folks, even though on paper it looks like they're a lot faster. How do you how do you go into that with confidence and just kind of keep your head level when you're on the starting line? Yeah, it's not it's not something I really think about a whole lot anymore because, you know, one thing I've learned is that like, you know, people's PRs are from their very best day. And so if you show up to a road race in August, you know, maybe his PR is, you know, 27, 10, but he may, he may not be a 27, 10 guy on that day. Um, so you can beat people who you wouldn't expect to beat, um, just give the time of year and where you are in your training. So I, I have like faith in myself that on my best day, if someone is not having their best day, I might be able to get them, you know, <laughs> and that's, and that's kind of enough to, that's, that's enough to allow me to show up to a start line with, with some confidence and just, you know, rest assured that I'm going to, I'm going to give my best and put my best effort out there. Um, you know, and if that falls, if that puts me in last place, like, yeah, so be it. But, um, I definitely show up feeling and knowing that, that on my best day, I can compete with these guys. I want to switch gears a bit. Last time we talked, you mentioned how you had hiked the John Muir trail and it was mm -hmm. kind of a turning point in your life at the time. And we really didn't get into much detail about it back then. So I'm curious, what was so transformative about that experience for you? Huh, yeah, that's, let's see. That's, that's a good question. It's kind of not always like super easily explained. I guess 
so the nature of the trail is your like you know i was basically out there for like six weeks it wasn't any incredible athletic performance or anything but you're just you know you're out there you don't have cell phone reception you're not showering like you're totally off the grid um and it really allows you to just kind of relax and focus on what's happening to you right now and gives you a lot of time to reflect on what's important to you um, mostly because you're just not distracted by anything you have a lot of time to think um and so i really came back from that experience and just kind of realized i really needed to do what made me happy and like what kind of got me out of bed in the morning which i really wasn't doing in my normal life before i before i went on that trip i mean i was happy enough but i wasn't i don't know it felt stagnant so i really came back and i was like you know i'd given myself permission to make another drastic change because i had just kind of quit my life for two months and did this trail that was a pretty drastic decision and so once you make one it's kind of easy to make another one and so i was <laughs> i was like okay i did this you know maybe i can move and pursue distance running which you know before i took that trip might have sounded i might never never have done it i might never give myself permission to like make a move that big but after i did the trail it didn't seem like that crazy of a decision anymore um so i just went for it i think that's super cool uh would you ever consider going on another long adventure like that maybe sometime during a break or when you're career is over was it something you wanted to try again oh absolutely yeah um definitely something i want to do again it's you know it's it's ironically like more difficult for me to do stuff like that in my current like situation um there's almost never a period that long where i'm not going to need to be training but you know some shorter backpacking trips would definitely come into play um you know, maybe post-marathon stuff when I have some time off. But even like after my competitive career is over, like I, I hope to still, um, you know, plan trips like that, even if they're not very fre- frequent, but just to have stuff on the radar. But yeah, I loved backpacking. I loved that whole experience. So I'd definitely be open to pursuing something like it again. Is there a particular trail that intrigues you? Um, I, I've done some like very preliminary research on the Colorado trail because well, I'm in Colorado. So I feel like that would be, that would be one that I could do, um, like semi-locally. Um, the AT, the Appalachian trail is obviously like a big and famous one. Um, so section hiking that like is pretty appealing to me too. And, um, honestly I would do the John Muir trail again, um, given the opportunity, um, because you know how much of it do you really see when you just walk through it once. So sure. I'd be I'd be open to really any of those things. One thing I've always admired and respected about you is you seem to have a nice balance in your life for someone whose job is to train and race at a high level. So I'm interested in what do you do when you're not training to occupy your time? Yeah. Um I'm not even sure it's a really very like it's a really cool answer anymore, but <laughs> like um you know, I'm kind of learning what to do with my days, so I'm trying to read um I listen to a lot of podcasts um and just kind of try to hang out and rest. We have a dog now, so I spend a lot of my time kind of taking her out and going for walks and stuff um yeah, man, it's pretty low key. I'm pretty good about turning my I'm pretty good about like not sitting around and just thinking about running all the time. So I think some professionals have voiced struggles where 
you know, all of a sudden they're not having to work, but they're like at home with their thoughts all day. And that's almost like worse because it just makes them really anxiety prone. Um, and I, and I was always kind of curious if I would be that guy when I didn't have, you know, the middle of my days more structured. Um, but I'm really not like, I can really sit around and, and do some chores around the house and just kind of enjoy being home alone and hanging out. And I'm not any more stressed about running than I was before. How much do you think about life after competitive running? And are you doing anything now to prepare yourself for that? Yeah, I think about it all the time. I mean, like, again, I, I didn't sign my contract until I was uh, 26, you know? And so it's not like I graduated college and all I've ever known is like, the life of a professional athlete or whatever. Like I, I know that the real world is out there and that I'm going to have to, um, function in it again, um, someday. So, um, yeah. in the next, in the next few years, maybe. So yeah, I think I, one thing I know is that I would love to stay in the, uh, in the running industry in some capacity. And so I definitely take advantage of my position as a professional athlete, I get to interact with a lot of different people. You know, I get to interact with Saucony, the marketing people who work there, the production people who work there, um, the athlete managers, like I get to interact with everybody in that company, kind of learn their jobs. Um, you know, I interact with my agent, Josh Cox, and I get to learn, you know, about what he does. Um, I interact with race directors and people who put on events and, you know, I've, I've kind of got my toe in every sector of the industry almost. Um, and so I'm kind of learning about those different roles and if any of those are something I might want to pursue when I'm done and honestly, just making as many connections as I can and meeting as many people as I can, um, because those connections I think are going to be the most valuable thing when my contract is up. Um, and I'm looking for, you know, the next step. Absolutely. I think that's smart on your part. And it's good to see because you see a lot of these bigger brands, they'll sponsor athletes. And oftentimes the athlete doesn't really do anything for the brand besides run fast. And maybe it's because they're fast enough that that's all they need to do. Uh, and then they have nothing beyond that or the brand doesn't use the athlete in some way. And one thing that's been cool from afar since you've signed with Saucony is seeing that they're using you in some of their ad campaigns and, um, various, promotional things that they're doing. And I want to talk about one of those things. It was the, the, we all ride commercial, which yeah. I'll link to in the show notes. <laughs> and I'll, I'll admit that I didn't get it at all, but I loved it. And for some reason I felt like it was the perfect role for you. So I'm curious how that came to be. Yeah, no, you're right. The commercial, like from a plot um, standpoint makes absolutely no sense, but I think it makes up for it and just like kind of craziness. Um, yeah. So I know to go to backtrack a little bit, I totally agree. It's really frustrating to me when companies don't use athletes because, you know, that's the way we gain exposure. It's great for me to be in a commercial and it's great for Saucony because they get a return on their investment that they don't necessarily get when I run 2807 in front of a hundred people in Palo Alto, you know? Um, so really anytime an opportunity like that comes up, if I can fit it in training, um, training wise, like I'm up for it. Like, yeah, my primary goal is to run as fast as possible. But two, um, we're, we're marketers too, right? Um, that's the way to make this sport sustainable. So anyway, they, uh, I got an email from Saucony about that shoot. And they just said, you know, one, are you willing to do this like three-day shoot, salt flats? And also, can you ride a motorcycle? And um, 
<laughs> and I was just like, uh, yeah, I'm up for it. I can't ride a motorcycle, but <laughs> so I really had no idea what was, uh, what was going to happen until I got there. And what, what's the response been like since then? Cause I felt like it cast you into this, this role that obviously has nothing to do with your running, but it felt very <laughs> no. Noah Drotty to me. Yeah, no, a lot of the, like, you know, the sunglasses were mine. Like, you know, I, I, they really didn't have to do much of a wardrobe change for that. Um, but, uh, no, it's, it's been fun. Like, I think everybody really got a kick out of it, especially people who know me. So, uh, you know, anytime around, anytime I'm around, like some friends now, somebody will like inevitably shout out, like we all ride or who rides or whatever. So it's, it's been kind of fun in that way. Um, yeah, it, it was just cool to participate in. I think people found like the fun in it and, uh, the humor in it. And, uh, you know, it did, it did feel like weirdly authentic to do that too, even though I'm not really sure what I was doing. So you've got your signature facial hair and mustache, which I'm quite honestly envious of, uh, because I can't grow <laughs> facial hair at all. Um, and when you're training, it seems like it's just, you've got it all going. You've got the beard, you've got the mustache, but then when you race, at least all the photos that I've seen, it's like straight up bushy stash, no beard. Is there a method behind your madness? Yeah. I mean, uh, kind of. So the mustache is really like, I try to pull it out on like important occasions, like mentally, you know, and I don't even know if this makes sense, but it's like, you know, you're training, your beard is growing. It's like your beard has been growing since you very first started training. And then, and then you accumulate this fitness, you accumulate this beard. <laughs> and then like the night before a race, it's like, you just go down to the mustache and you're like kind of ready to roll. I guess that's kind of the mentality behind it. Like this, this morning I was actually thinking on my run today, I was like, will I grow the beard like all the way through to the marathon? Um, and I think I'm probably going to, but, uh, yeah, it just kind of it's reflective of that state that you're in in training, I think, where it's like kind of grungy and it's, you know, hard and you're just kind of growing this like burly man beard until it's time to like show off a little bit. That's kind of how I look at it. Yeah. And then when you shave it off, it's almost like putting on your racing flats. It's just that signal to yourself that it's time to throw down. Yeah, exactly. So I, you know, pinning on the singlet, it's all it's all the same. Uh, it's all kind of the same ceremony. So you just mentioned this in passing about your 2807 in front of like a hundred people in Palo Alto, which is not really that much of an exaggeration. And that's like yeah. one of the, as far as distance running goes, that's one of the more competitive meets in the U S people go there to run fast. That's what it's known for. And I want to talk a bit about the coverage of our sport, both track and field and road racing to some degree, because I'd argue it's, it's suffering a lot. Um, from your perspective, what do you think can be done to like help make it more exciting or more appealing to fans? Oh, isn't that like the question of the century um, <laughs> or like the question of the decade in our sport? Probably one um, that'll never get fully answered, but I'd love your take on it. Yeah. Um, well, I'll start. I saw a great tweet um, and I retweeted it a couple of days ago. Maybe it was yours. I don't even remember. But uh, it, it was about how we really... No, it was Steve Magnus. He was, he was saying like how dumbing the sport down hasn't worked. And really, we need to create a product where we, where we endeavor to explain the complexities of the sport and the nuances of the sport and like the romanticism of the sport. Um, what, what gives me faith is that, you know, the race, the, like the foot race is the most pure form of sport. 
I think, you know, it's like anybody, if they see like a one-on-one foot race, it's interesting. It's cool. People will stop and watch, but for some reason, the way we've packaged it, it's not having that effect on like a large scale. Um, and you know, part of that is, you know, like the 10 K I ran at Peyton Jordan, we started at like 10 45 at night, you know? And so the conditions were like maximized for us as athletes. But, you know, if I lived in San Francisco, I'm definitely not going to drive to Palo Alto, watch a 30 minute race and then go home if the race starts at 1030. So it's like a lot of times I don't think we're, we're keeping viewers in mind when we're broadcasting, when we're broadcasting this stuff. Um, you know, commentary has a long way to go. Like I, I cringe a lot of the running commentary <laughs> that I hear. Um, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm like, I wish these guys would hire me and one of my buddies and hire me and Tyler Mueller and we'll get up there and, and just do color commentary in an ish, interesting way. And we know our stuff better than these guys. Um, I would tune so into sometimes that. I, yeah. Thanks man. Yeah. Who do I need to talk to? But it, but it's like, I just know that we can do better and it, and it's pretty obvious a lot of times when I'm watching running coverage that we're just settling and we're not really trying to be innovative. Um, cause I don't really know that the events need to change that much. I think we just need to be, better at the way they're presented, um, create an exciting, accessible product. Um, the paywalls are really hard for the sport. Um, you know, like I am tuned into the scene, like I'm, I know what's going on and, and like, I could really not even tell you the last time I watched track live, you know, cause it's impossible. It's like, you have to have a subscription here and here and here. I think I saw a tweet not too long ago that said, if you really want to subscribe to everything, like so 300 bucks really a year not, or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. If you're not going to miss like a big running event and you know, if I'm not doing that, who is not, um, not, not me. And I'm probably just as dialed into it as, as you are. And it is a little bit off putting. And I think you're onto something. I think there is definitely a, a problem with the packaging and presentation of the sport as it exists. But I also think too, sometimes within the sport, um, and I, I'll take some of the blame for this in the past, but there's been this resistance to thinking outside the box and doing some of these exhibition type events, which don't have to be the main thing, but can definitely attract, uh, outside eyeballs to watch some of the more traditional road races, track meets, et cetera. So I would agree. I think there's just a, a lot of work that needs to be done on, on all sides of it. Yeah. I mean, we don't have to turn the sport into a sideshow. Like we can we can just find more innovative ways of presenting it to people. And then one other, not to like ramble about this too long, but one other side of it is like you mentioned earlier, it's sponsors using athletes. It's, it's the marathons that we signed with like using us and telling our stories and create and creating relatable characters for fans to get behind, you know, cause it, cause people love baseball teams or certain players or football teams because those teams have a mystique and those teams have a story and, and they're familiar with the men um, or women on those teams. And so they want to follow the story. They want to be involved. And with runners, I feel like we're too often just like off the grid training. We show up at a race out of context every six weeks or so. The fans miss it because they don't know where to watch it. And then we tweet about it maybe. And <laughs> it's like, it's really impossible to follow the the sports personalities. Yeah, you've got to put yourself out there. And interestingly, your agent, Josh Cox, I would argue, was one of the best at doing that. And he did a lot of it on his own, just showing up at expos, showing up at races, making himself 
present. When I worked at competitor and we were associated with rock and roll, if you went to a rock and roll race, more people would know who Josh Cox was than they would Galen Rupp because Josh was yeah. at the expo. Josh was leading shakeout runs. Josh was connecting with the fans and he caught a lot of crap for that, but he also made a great career out of it. And I think more athletes need to be thinking along those lines. How can I connect with those people in the back of the pack who are going to follow my career, who are going to support me through the end, who might buy the shoes that I'm in, endorsing um, and all of that. So, yeah, I, I would agree with you uh, on a lot of those things. Yeah, we just need to redefine our roles and just kind of think about think about ourselves as more than just athletes and really the whole sport will, uh, will benefit from that. So I don't want to end on a negative note. So what's exciting you in running right now? You, you know, you asked me this last time we talked too, and and I was thinking about it. And I don't know that my answer is any different. Like I still think we're waiting on the next great crop of American marathoners, and and especially from like my vantage point here in Boulder, like there's a lot of guys who I think are very close to like running some very very fast marathon times, especially as we you know inch closer to uh, to the marathon trials. Um, we're going to see guys start really playing their cards um, because right now it's like the, the marathon is really wide open. Um, the Hoka guys ran really well in Frankfurt last year and laid down some two twelves. And now I think it's time for like everybody else to start running two twelves. And hopefully by the time we get to the trials, we've got a bunch of two ten guys who are ready to go after it. So I think it's just watching these young marathoners just kind of waiting to break through. I mean, we obviously have like Galen who's, who's already broken through on, you know, world level, but you know, in terms of the overall excitement of the sport, I think it'll be a lot cooler when we've got like 15, 20 guys who all show up to the trials with like a good chance of making the team. So seeing the evolution of like a lot of my friends in the marathoners is really exciting me right now. But you're also a part of that. How cool is that? Um, to be kind of in the middle of it and to be in a position where you could be one of those guys. Yeah. Um, and that's like another thing I'm kind of, like kind of coming to terms with, um, you know, my, my girlfriend, Emma kind of sat me down, um, a few days ago and she was like, you know, she's like, I think that you have the potential of making an Olympic team. And like, just so you know, I'm here to like support you, um, with whatever you do. And I'm just here to be kind of a rock for you. And I was like, Oh my God, it's like when people close to you start, start when people close to you start to believe and this like kind of incredible dream, it makes it easier to give yourself permission to dream it. And so, and so it's not quite sunk into me as a reality yet, but yeah, I would like to really be one of those guys who show up on the start line with a chance. Um, and, uh, that's, yeah, that's been kind of a transformational thing for me and something I'm excited about. I love it. And I think you should give yourself a chance because you're just as capable as a lot of these other guys that you just mentioned to, put yourself in that position and potentially contend for a spot. So I say, stay with it, man. Um, I like you, Mario. I appreciate that, <laughs> Noah. And for all of you scoring at home, Noah is a subscriber to the morning shakeout newsletter. And if you're not, you should go to the morning shakeout.com slash subscribe and check it out for yourself. All right. I think that's a great place to end it. But before we go, where can my listeners connect with you online besides the, I built the arc Twitter handle. Yeah. Um, I'm also on Instagram. Um, I think it's, Noah underscore Drotty or something like that. You can Google it, find it pretty easily. Um, yeah, those are probably the two best places I try to get back to messages and stuff um, whenever I can. So they're welcome to drop me a line there. 
there you go. And keep your eyes open for Noah. He will be at a marathon this fall, TBD. And that's a wrap on this week's show, which was brought to you by UCAN. If you want long-lasting energy without the big crash, give UCAN products a try before your next long run. UCAN is offering Morning Shakeout listeners a super cool sample pack. It includes one packet of UCAN Super Starch Drink Mix, one packet of UCAN Protein Drink Mix, and one UCAN Snack Bar, all for under 5 bucks. Best part? It includes free shipping. Get it for yourself at generationucan.com slash morningshakeout and see what you think. My thanks to all of you for listening into this episode. If you want to support the podcast, the easiest way is by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your audio content and leaving a rating and a review. It will only take a minute, but it helps other listeners discover the show. Not to mention, it means a lot to me. I'm super appreciative for all the love and support you've thrown my way so far. Really, I'm just blown away by it all. So thank you so, so much. One final thanks from my man, John Isaac, for all his audio and editing work behind the scenes. He is the reason that this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. So thank you, John. All right, that's all I've got for now. Until next time, I'm Mario Fraley, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast.